This is Book TV's Afterwards. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist or public policymaker or legislator who is familiar with their work. This week, ESPN.com writer Howard Bryant offers his thoughts on sports, politics, and race in America. He's interviewed by author and former NBA player Eton Thomas. It's an honor to be able to sit down with Howard Bryant. The new book is called Full Dissidence, uh, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. How are you doing, Mr. Bryant? Thomas, how are you doing? Good to see you again. Oh, I'm doing great. And this is a very, very interesting book. Um, you know, I had a chance to really read through it here, and I, I, I really couldn't put it down. You have ten original essays, um, and I, I think you really touched on a lot of different topics with the, the different worlds that exist. And, and, and I think that in mainstream America, they're not aware of those two worlds. And even though we're talking about them and we're, we're pointing these, these things out, you really did a good job of laying everything out through these different essays. First of all, let me ask you, you dedicated the book um, for Tisa. Tell me who Tisa is and why you dedicated <laughs> to her. Well, Tisa's my sister. She's my older sister, and uh, she's one of the people... Well, she's the original troublemaker, so I <laughs> wanted to make sure that that uh, I acknowledged her, and she... Uh, one of the people that we always talk about in terms of uh, when she and I go back and forth over the years talking about all these different, these different subjects, these details, and of all the books that I've done, I thought this one was the most appropriate for her. Talk to me about your, your overall goal in the book. Well, I think that the goal of the book was to reach an acknowledgement, was to was to to try to sort out where we were as a as a country, and, and for me as a person, I think that after my last book, the heritage that you helped me on very much and, and enjoyed us talking about all that, about where black athletes were in the culture and that sort of revival of the black political athlete. I think that the combination of Ferguson, the combination of the militarism, the combination of Trayvon, and then, of course, the 2016 election, as much as it made us think about what was happening in sports, it also brought me back to making me think about where I was as a person and sort of how this election took its, its, its course and the implications of it. What was it going to do to relationships? I remember saying to myself that this election was going to end a lot of friendships and maybe some relationships as well. Mm -hmm. And it sort of created for me a moment of introspection to think of how could this happen in the wake of the first black president of eight, eight years of Barack Obama and what was being said, what message was being sent to all of us. And for me personally, being in sports, as you know, we've had so much conversation of where politics fit and how we've been constantly being told that there was no room for politics. And then it made me think that, that sports was a major, major vehicle in, in pushing a certain narrative while we were being told not to push that same narrative of right. having a political attitude. So it struck me that uh, I needed to make some conclusions. I needed to really think about where we were, and I started to think about that I didn't think I had ever characterized it in this way, uh -huh. but I started, to, I started to think that that sports was one of the, the main sources of anti-blackness, even though in the previous book I started thinking about how sports was empowering the athletes, I began asking myself the question, how much power do you really have uh -huh. if 
you lose everything if you run the risk of taking a black position and losing everything that you have, you know, despite your despite your millions. All right, it's interesting that you bring this up. Um, having this conversation as we're you know now still still in mourning over you know the tragedy that happened with Kobe Bryant's death and his, the, the the death of his daughter and teammates and nine different different people. Um, and where do you think that fits in to everything that you just said? Because the the anti the, the the group that is coming against it right now now as we're doing this interview it's only been what 72 hours um, mm-hmm. but but you see that that anti-blackness start to kind of bubble over whether we're talking about in the media or whether they're talking about on social media um, and I think that ties in to a lot of your points that we're going to delve into here in a minute but I wanted to get your reaction on that aspect in dealing with the Kobe Bryant tragedy. Well, I wonder how much it, of of a connection there was simply in the fact that there's such a beloved character at in one level but at the same time when we think about his arc his arc was far from clean and i i think it's been real interesting watching how this has played out over time i haven't really come up with a with a a, a thesis about it yet Uh um, because it is so early and it was such a a terrible tragedy. But I'm sure over the next several weeks and months as we see how this plays out, um, you'll see some threads, definitely. I definitely agree. Okay, so let's delve through everything. One one of the things that I I noticed um, when I I went (laughs) on different interviews with my book, We Matter, Athletes and Activism, we would do the interview, and then after a while, I'd say, okay, you didn't really talk about the book. (laughs) You know, you talk about Mm, everything else. Right. So, Did you read the book? All right. right. Did you even read it? So I want to, you know, go through chapter by chapter and have you break down the different aspects of the chapter. So um, the, the, the first chapter is um, full dissidence. And the first part, you talk about what Colin Kaepernick taught us. I want you to delve into that a little bit for the audience. Yeah, well, the first section of the book was really about this thing that we're talking about, these images and these these ideas that, that sports is used to sell to the public, uh, what is being sold by sports to the public. And I think the first essay was really about uh, about Kaepernick and sort of the lessons of Colin Kaepernick that as we talk about him, he still looms so large. He hasn't played in three years, and right. yet at, he's at the center of so many different movements. He's at the center when we're talking about the NFL and their initiatives now. We're still talking about Kaepernick, even though he's not in the game. Mm-hmm. Whether we're, you know, we're talking about his rehabilitation with Nike and what that meant, and we're talking about the, the, the different athletes who are somehow... Uh, commit crimes and get into all kinds of trouble and yet they're allowed to return. What does that say? And then everything seemed to come back to him. One of the things that I wanted to really concentrate with the athletes in that chapter as well was to talk about two things. The first thing was labor. Was I was wondering when I got done with the heritage, I was really asking myself the question whether or not I was too charitable to the athletes, that, that we talk about the Players Coalition and we talked about the athletes being at the forefront of this you know, of this movement, of this movement toward being more political. Mm-hmm. But then I started to think after that book came out, I was thinking that the athletes really weren't out front, mm-hmm. that it was the people who were out front and the athletes followed the people. The athletes followed the teachers who were out there on strike in Oklahoma and Arizona and West Virginia. And I started thinking more and more about, about them and that maybe that the the athletes in so many ways, despite having as much power as they have and having as much money as they have, I found them to be actually more timid than I than I let on in the in in the previous book. So I wanted to really talk about that there was this movement taking place that the athletes 
we give the athletes the credit because they're out front, but really what you're really talking about is power making its move across labor, uh, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about sports, that you see institutions asserting themselves more and more. And then the second thing in that chapter that I wanted to, to talk about as well was was me personally about what it meant, what Colin Kaepernick was, you know, what he represented. I think that over time there had been so much frustration and inspiration at the same time about him. Number one, about all the things that he brought in terms of raising money and spending his own money and, and, and essentially martyring his career uh, for, you know, for what he believed was right. And for what he believed was right. And I think that at the same time, people were very frustrated that he didn't give any interviews. And what, and what did that mean? And he was marketing his products and his shirts and everything else. And, and there was this sort of tug of war about, okay, well, did he, did he lose an opportunity as a leader? And at the same time, you know, by not speaking, and what was his strategy and his tactics? And then I started to take another position. And by the end of that chapter, I realized that, that he deserved our our support and he mm-hmm. deserves our sympathy in a lot of ways because just because Nike decided to bring him back, the number of organizations, whether it was police or fire or individual businesses that were trying to boycott Nike, just by mentioning this man's name told me that there was an entire movement that was out to destroy him. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that required um, a, re, uh, a reassessment on my part, that that he deserves support. Why was it so important to crush this one individual? You know, what did one, that say? One of the things that I liked about this chapter in particular, um, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time in my book um, talking about Kaepernick, and I like the way that you fully examined him. It's okay to be critical of somebody and still support them. Um, you talked about the fact that he didn't uh, speak to the media. And then you critically tried to examine that. You know, you wanted to talk about the fact that, okay, is it easier for him to get a lot of the credit for what a lot of the people have been doing and pushing for? You know, of course, my answer to that would be that, you know, athletes just have a platform and an opportunity to further along a movement, not necessarily create a movement. And mm-hmm. sometimes they do get the, you know, we, we do get the credit for it, but that's just because yeah. of the platform. But I well, like right. the way that you, that you examine that because some people, they're not able to critically look at a, a, a person, different dynamics of it, without saying, okay, I'm trying to cancel him, I'm attacking him, I'm pro or against. You know, I mean, but you looked at well, it fully. absolutely. And mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought that was really a credit to you in this chapter. Well, I appreciate it. Well, I also thought, too, that, that when we're thinking about him over, over all this time, it keeps changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about, you're really looking at what he took, a, we're looking at, at August 2016, we're looking at almost four years. Right. And so, so many things change in between that time as well. And so it's not, the, it's, it's going to be a constant assessment and reassessment of not just him, but also us. I definitely agree. Let's move on to the next part. Um, it's okay to criticize the military. I thought that was, that was very good for a lot of different reasons, because people think, again, that if you do are critical of the military, then you're <coughs> against the veterans, that you're against the country, that you're against mm-hmm. America. And that's the narrative that has been drawn in the line of the sand. But talk about this chapter a little bit. Yeah, I think what I wanted to get across in, in that chapter more than anything else was to pay attention to the images that are being used through sports, that that what we're saying when we're watching a sporting event 
we're so constantly trying to tell people that if you have anything to say, you're anti-troop. Right. And if you're saying any, you're, you're anti-American, you're anti-this, you're anti-that. And, and also, it is that same thing where we're being told as well that this isn't political. Mm-hmm. And, and I look at this and I'm thinking that choices are being made in the United States every day with our money. And every single day that you're talking about not criticizing military or not talking about military or feeling as though you cannot discuss the military, you're also recognizing what's happening to our budgets. You're looking at, you're, you're looking at $700, $800 billion defense budgets, and that money is coming at the cost of something. Mm-hmm. And that when we're talking about sports as well, we keep being told that we don't want to hear from Colin Kaepernick, but at the same time, you, you're out there and you see military... And if you go out and take a look at some of the statistics that are out there and you look at some of the studies that are out there, we're at war and we have a military presence all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got a military presence in 76 countries. The Cost of War Project from Brown University was incredible in doing some of the research in that chapter where you look at essentially what we're selling and what we're selling at the expense of what we're losing. And so what I thought was very important was to think about student debt and to think about all of these things that are happening at the same time during Mm -hmm. a presidential campaign that you're not allowed to talk about the military, you're not allowed to talk about where that money is going, and at the same time you have this national conversation taking place about student debt and about canceling debt and about the next generation of Americans that simply can't even afford to choose majors that aren't going to put them in some sort of financial sector. You know, I, and again, I, I really appreciated this 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 chapter because you know my my grandfather was what well, he fought in the Korean conflict, and we had this com- these conversations all the time about mm-hmm. the, the shortcomings of the military, the fact that you know they didn't even have you know mental health as even being uh, something where you got um, to any type of assistance once you were once you were brought back from the from the war. Um, you know, the, the the amount of homelessness in in the military, you know, the veterans that you care about so much, <coughs> or you know the the, the different. Problems and it's it's okay to discuss that and not you know be painted as against and anti. I thought this was fantastic. Let's go on to the next one. Um, Copaganda. Again, you know, I thought this was, this was great because the 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 line in the sand is if you criticize the police, then you're yeah, anti-police. Right. right. If you if you if you say okay this this didn't happen the right way, the police department didn't do what they're supposed to do. It's just anti-cop as a complete label. And I think that you again brilliantly just showed that 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 isn't the case please talk about that a little bit well i think that that's one of the things as well and it's uh, the conversation about sports once more we talk about product placement and i think the overall conversation as well when you look at the culture when i take my son to the movies and we're looking at all these trailers and we talk about where we are as a culture we talk about these different images and we talk about who we are are we really paying attention to who we are and what we're selling? Mm-hmm. And uh, you watch, you know, whether it's your buddy movies and your Will Smiths and your Martin Lawrences and your you know, Dwayne Johnson and all these different movies where it's one-liners and bullets and more ammo and more ammo and how much guns and police are such a central part of our culture. And I wanted to talk about, I think, the fact that we're over-policed and I think that I wanted to, to discuss the difficulties that come with trying to have some police accountability and what what having police as 
a center of your entertainment and a center of your culture, what that actually does to justice. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for actual justice? Are you able to, you know, when we talk about even someone like Colin Kaepernick or we're talking about just police reform or, or, or whatever, how are you supposed to even have justice as a jury pool when people treat police like they're part of your favorite ball team? Right. And, and I wanted to really get out there and, and have a conversation inside of that essay about the police being such a powerful um, presence in our daily culture and what that actually means and how difficult it is to even hold them accountable at all when you're looking at the the discounts, you're looking at all of the different dispensation they get. And remember that this is taking place in a sporting milieu when we're being told that sports aren't political. Right. You know, it's interesting, since I, since I interviewed a lot of the family members of the victims of police brutality in my book, I've done a lot of work with them. So Tiffany Crutcher, who is Terrence Crutcher's sister, oh, yes. mm-hmm. and um, Emerald Garner, who is Eric Garner's daughter. And, you know, I, I just went to an event with um, Valerie Castile, who is Philando Castile's mother. And all of them have a commonality of saying they're not anti-police. It's like they keep on having to repeat that over and over again. But and that's the other point, that they have to feel that they feel like they have to say that. Exactly. But they want the rules to be able to be changed in the way that we police. That's not anti-police. That's just trying to make um, the, the way that we police better. And it's just interesting how what you said about how we're always flooded with when you see something happen immediately. Mainstream America thinks, OK, well, the police are in the right. Let's wait till the facts comes out. And that usually means let's let's wait till the police tell us what really happened, because well, we right. know that the police are going to tell us the truth. Well, and that's one of the big problems that you have, too, is that the police aren't held accountable. They're not responsible for their own police reports. They're not held. I, I think it's very, very dangerous in the country and as a culture that you are taking an entire an entire uh, field, an entire industry and treating it as heroic. Right. And. In every other business, in every other, you know, if I go out and write a story that's not true, I get sued. Right. If, if, if you're a doctor and you operate on the wrong leg, you get sued, that there's accountability right. and that right. people want you exactly. That they, but that doesn't apply to police. And mm-hmm. what that does is it creates, it, it, it creates a real danger. And, it, and what it also does is it constantly puts the black community in, in a defensive position. Mm-hmm. And, and the dangers are obvious and we see it and it's, it's something that I just felt needed to be discussed. I think you did it brilliantly. Okay, let's move on to the next part. Uh, the Lost Tribe of Integration. Um, I thought this was very, especially coming off of the heels of Martin Luther King um, Day and, and celebrating <coughs> his life and leaving out the part, um, a, a, a tremendous essay that he, that he wrote, and I, I won't say it correctly, but he said, um, I feel like I integrated my people into a burning building, something mm-hmm. of that nature. And I thought about that as I was reading your, your, th- this chapter. Talk to us about this chapter. Yeah, well, those next three essays, the book sections off into the next three essays, and those are more personal about this price of integration, about blackness, and about what the price of blackness is on African Americans and sort of the choice that we're being asked to make. And that was more personal for me growing up thinking about uh, the choices that my family made growing up in Boston and thinking about the choice that the family had to make for our education. We were, everybody who knows Boston, the first thing they think of is Boston being racist and, mm-hmm. and they're thinking about the busing stuff. I was, you know, my sister and I, we were, 
we were part of that period of, uh, of school integration in Boston, and we were part of a, of a voluntary program where we were bused out to the white suburbs. So we weren't part of the inner city busing, but we went to school getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to mm-hmm. go to white schools. And so the, those next several essays are really all about this price of blackness and the price of integration. And asking ourselves this question is that all of the things that these black families are doing is to give you a better life, to give you an education, to give you all these tools that you need. And I think one of the issues that was really pertinent for me was to this day, why are we still being asked to do these things? Why is the proximity to whiteness so important? Why are we still unable in so many ways to provide certain educa- the educational opportunities and resources to our schools, in our communities? Why is this choice? In my personal case, it was growing up in the inner city of Boston and then moving out to, to uh, 50 miles south, out to Plymouth, Massachusetts, where you're trading one set of violence, you're trading the physical violence of a de- you know, the declining inner city uh-huh. to the emotional violence of growing up around white people. And uh-huh. so suddenly you're, you, you're growing up in an environment where you're the only black kid in class for the rest of your, of your school career. And I wanted to talk about that because so many times we talk about this black experience and the authenticity of the black experience when there are several black experiences. Uh-huh. And, and I felt like this is one of the areas where so many African-American students and so many African-American parents make this choice. And they take their kids and they put their kids in this white, against this white backdrop uh-huh. and how much of that emotional violence and trauma, whether you're dealing with black people treating you as though you're inauthentic or being isolated in the white community, uh, you're sort of lost. You're caught in between constantly. And I wanted to talk about that. And, and once again, that question of why is all of this necessary? What are the, what are the sacrifices that black parents have to make in order to give you the, cho- the tools and the choices that you need to try to become American? I mean, uh, this this chapter really spoke to me because I had a similar situation that you had uh, moving into Tulsa, Oklahoma from New York. You know, my, my mother wanted to put me in what was thought of to be the best school in, in mm-hmm. Oklahoma. You know, I needed uh, I needed discipline, single parent household, you know, so she put me into a school named Monte Casino. And literally, you know, third and fourth grade was okay. Fifth grade was literally hell on earth for me. <laughs> I started getting taller. Mm-hmm. I started becoming a threat to the teachers. I started to see how I was treated differently. And I was like, Mom, please get me out of this school. They do not like me here. And the That's thing right. that, that I liked that you pointed out was it was it's, you know, people think of the proximity to white people as being better. But what it was is that they have the better resources in their That's schools, right. but why do they have the better resources in their schools? Because if yeah. we had the resources mm-hmm. in our schools, we wouldn't be trying to go over there. And, well, and you right. made that point very clear, and that was a really important point to make. Well, and what else does it say? You know, what's the emotional cost when you go to these schools and you go to these communities? Then you come home to seeing what you have, mm-hmm. and you start wondering why are why are we like this? What? Is, why does you know? On the one hand, you're thinking about the value of being in that environment, and then you start looking at yourself, and you've got to be strong to, to go through that. And, and so many times you, you think about it, you know, our parents, 
they sent us the message that you got to tough it out. Life's not fair. Right. And they stuck us in there for, for our betterment. And I think one of the things that my sister and I spent a lot of time talking about was, was it better for us after all in the long run? And I think a lot of black families are having that conversation in retrospect. I know that my family, um, the other members of our family that didn't do this, talked about how important it was to maintain your identity, even though you were in schools that maybe not as, weren't as good as the ones that we had gone to. But they were willing to to sacrifice a little bit of educational quality for for your identity, to maintain that identity and the importance of keeping your identity. And it's so important. I mean, I can't say that enough. And, you know, I I, I looked at the positives and the negatives of it because on one hand, mm-hmm. it, sh- it, it taught me how society will be, well, how you're, you're going to be looked at a certain way. You're going to be looked at as inferior. You're going to be looked at as like you don't belong. You're going to be looked at as a criminal in some cases. And, yep. you know, people don't like the notion that you have to be twice or three times as good just to be viewed as not inferior. Not that yeah. you are, but viewed as though you're not. And, cool. and I saw that throughout my entire life. So it did kind of prepare me for that, that experience. But I was so happy in middle school and I went to Carver Middle School and, and got back around black people and had well, black exactly. teachers right. and educators. And you know what I mean? It was I just didn't have a black teacher. Different. I think I had one black teacher through my entire high school career. I didn't have a black, oh, wow. I didn't have a, I didn't have a black non-gym teacher until African-American studies in college. Wow, wow, wow. See, you know, I, and, I, and, and that is the, 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 those are the things. And I think one of the difficult things for if you're white and you're reading these essays is that there is this feeling of inherent goodness mm-hmm. that, well, no, this is good for you and that you know, we're not placing you in a hostile environment. And so these environments are hostile. And I think that's one of the things, too, that was really, really difficult for me in thinking about these essays was... You had to survive, and, uh-huh. some, and some people did, and a lot of people didn't. And you right. had to find those different areas where, you know, for you and for me, I'm sure they're somewhat similar. We played sports. Uh-huh. And if you could play, that sort of integrated you in, and that gave you a little bit of a leg up, whereas as opposed to, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't have that thing that was going to ingratiate you into the community, you were going to be in real trouble. I mean, have you ever, do you remember the movie Finding Forrester? I thought it was oh, a great movie, and I, I show it to I coach my son's AAU team, so I show it to them, and I'm like, listen, you are going to run into a teacher like that eventually. Yes. They are going to challenge you. They don't think that you belong. Oh, you're here just to you know pursue your athletic talent, but you don't really belong in their classroom. And mm-hmm. it's those kind of interactions that you know when you're when you're when you experience at a younger age, it prepares you for what you're going to see, especially when you're in college, or you, especially yeah. if you go to a PWI. I mean, it's, you're you're going to experience that. And I think that one of the things that you did really in this in this um, chapter is really show this to mainstream America because a lot of these. They don't know. They don't know this yeah. is how we feel. This is no, they don't know that this is the situation that we're in when we're in these, in these, in these institutions where we're looked at as differently, where we're the <laughs> only black person in the class or you can count them on your hand. You know what yeah. I mean? They just don't know how that feels. Well, and also the other part of that, too, is that what does that also do to your social life? All of a sudden, mm. you know, are, are, you know who are you going to date? Who are you going to be friends with? Who are right. you going to be around? And all of a sudden, before you know it, you become integrated into whiteness and it's not integration at all it's assimilation and especially when the studies show that if you had true integration the minute those statistics start to move more toward blackness when you start to get 20 30 percent black Mm -hmm. then white 
folks move out. Right. So you are constantly going to be against that white backdrop. So you're never really getting true integration. So what does that mean about that for for the people that you date? What does it mean for the social significance in terms of interacting with other African-Americans? And so when obviously you get back into the black community, you're either not black enough Mm -hmm. or when you're in the white community, you, you never feel like you belong. And then what does that do to your self-identity? You well, know, absolutely. To, the, to then how mm-hmm. you feel about yourself and the pride that you feel. You know, I remember different people that I went to school with, you know, when I was at Monte Casino, they literally were almost ashamed of being black. Oh, they weren't I mean? almost literally ashamed of being black. They were actually ashamed of being black. Right. I know that really well. And especially, you know, didn't know how to talk to other black people. Right. Right. And that's 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 tough. And I thought this was a fantastic uh, chapter. OK, let's go to the next one. Um, open season. Uh, the first part is the mediocre uh, white boy. I thought this was a very, very good chapter. Um, please break it down for us. Well, yeah. Well, before we do that, I wanted to actually go back and talk about okay. the worst thing in the world, mm. um, because that was the one where we talked about the athletes. And I was asked, think, I was thinking about you in some ways when I was working on that, because okay. when we were in, you know, when as as a professional, obviously, uh, I was thinking about it from a media standpoint about what it meant when I would talk to African American athletes mm. about about any sort of racial conversations at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every now and then you would find some of the players who were down, and those are the ones that you really relied on. But most of the black athletes, they recognized the choice that they were that was being made of them by being professional athletes. They didn't want to talk about race at all. They thought you kept trying to set them up because they knew that they didn't want to be part of the news cycle. They didn't want to be part of the news story. And, and I wanted to write in that essay about how in, in this in, in this environment, if you're in an 80% black league or a 70% black league, if you still felt like you couldn't be authentically black or you couldn't advocate black political positions, what did that say for your power? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, and I, I didn't mean to skip over that one as well, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I, I, I did think about with this is what is authentically black when I was reading this because you said it a couple times in this chapter um, that you didn't feel that you could be authentically black and now a lot of people have different interpretations as what that means does that mean that you're conscious and you know about your history and your heritage and now you speak with a level of intelligence of Malcolm or Martin to be able to you know to talk about your position (laughs) does it mean that you come into like a some type of a a character that you see on TV you know whether it's in hip hop or whether it's portrayed in the movies and that's what you interpret as authentically black. And that is a real, like, you know, struggle with people, especially if they're in situations where they're not around black people all the time, when they're no, put into right. these mm-hmm, different, mm-hmm. you know, because then when you're in the, in, the, in, the, in the white school, they're looking at you and they think everything you do is cool. You know what I mean? That's right. Because you're the cool yeah. black kid. And then you get around black people and they're like, why are you dressed like that? They're like, exactly. You know? well, yeah, why are you talking like right. that? That's right. <laughs> no, I think for me, what I was trying to get at in this chapter attitudinally was that if you advocate for the black community, that it's a black, that I'm talking about the black political choice. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about if you advocate in the inner cities or if you advocate for uh, the things that CAP was advocating for, you know, anti, uh, you know, if you're looking for police accountability or all those different things that are that are important to the you know to the black community in terms of 
those political choices where you're you find yourself at odds with the mainstream the price that you pay for that that a mm-hmm. choice is being made there that was what i was talking about not necessarily mm-hmm. i mean to, to me when i think about black authenticity i'm thinking about you looking in the mirror and knowing who you are that right. choice is yours right definitely but that other, that other part does exist though and it even exists in your presentation of the issues that you're di- that you're talking about in the black community i thought oh, that's one, right i mm-hmm. thought one part that was interesting in in this was also um, allies and the and the importance of allies and I, I I wanted to talk to you about that because you didn't talk about it a lot in this chapter but when you're talking about when when an athlete speaks out on something and they become you know known for speaking out on black issues That's you know right. specifically mm-hmm. um, but it, it should be an issue that should be um, that should bother everybody even if it's not something that specifically um, affects them. Do you know what I mean? So then it becomes not a black issue, but just an issue that shouldn't happen at all. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. Is that how, how, many, how many of your white teammates took mm-hmm. an issue that was important to you and said, yeah, this is important to me, too? Right. They become black issues. Right. I definitely, definitely agree. Um, the next chapter, Why Tanya? Um, that, that was a very interesting chapter as well. Explain what, you, what, you, what, what your point was to that chapter. Well, Why Tanya, to me, was... Uh, written during a very specific time. It was written, you know, during Charlottesville. I remember right after Charlottesville, I went to go see the movie, mm-hmm. and I was watching, and it just made me think so much about writing, and about about journalism, and about about control. Who has control of the camera? Who gets to rehabilitate? Who doesn't? And while watching that movie, I. I, there was so much, I mean, I understood the story and I understood obviously because it was such a bizarre, we remember 1994 and Tanya Harding and the whole mm-hmm. thing and it was ridiculous and bizarre and the whole thing. But it also was a serious issue for me too because you're watching this film and you're thinking, okay, there's something about her rehabilitation. Why do we care about Tanya Harding right now? And there was a certain level of sort of, of, of whiteness in that film where you could see people relate to her and humanize her, and it made me think about writing and control and who gets humanized and who doesn't. Mm. And, and I thought about it from also the standpoint, once again, we talk about this character always being present. It made me think about Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. It made me think about why has Colin Kaepernick never been rehabilitated in that way. He never got humanized. And I thought about the, the picture of Luke Heimlich, who was the... the the pitcher for Oregon State who was, who had the, um, who was a, a, a sex offender. Mm-hmm. And how Sports Illustrated wrote us an, an entire uh, cover story on him about rehabilitating him and trying to ask the question, which is an excellent question. What do we do with people in these situations? What do we do with, the, with our sex offenders? What do we do with people, you know, does Luke Heimlich have a, a right or an opportunity to be a major league player despite his past? And I thought about these issues, and I was thinking, and I thought about Cap in a very different way, and I was thinking, for everything that we've talked about with Colin Kaepernick, we always considered him to be a business consideration, whether he was a distraction or whether he wasn't, whether he was good for ratings, whether he was good for the gate, whether the teams would accept him. But no one ever talked about him as a man, as a person. And I thought about this, that you would look at someone like Tanya Harding, who was disgraced by her own admission. You look at someone like Luke Heimlich, who was disgraced by his own admission and through the legal system on both cases. And yet media allowed them to be treated with a different lens. 
And it made me think about, once again, who has the pen, who has the camera, who has the control, and how important that is when we tell stories and when we decide who, decide, you know, who gets to be treated with a level of humanity. You know, it's interesting, as, you're, as, as I was reading this, um, I couldn't help but thinking about the recent case with the Kansas and Kansas State fight and mm-hmm. how they were demonized, and in particular DeSosa was, was demonized. And I started looking at the different baseball fights that happen, the different hockey fights that mm-hmm. happen on the regular, um, mm-hmm. how the crowd is cheering. And then I started list- looking, going back to the DeSosa fight. If anybody didn't, uh, didn't, didn't see it, it was a fight between Kansas and Kansas State. Um, the player picked up a, 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 a chair, uh, a bar stool, and then in mid-stand, it's like he came to his senses, and he didn't. He, he, yep. he dropped the bar stool. But the way that he was vilified and the, the, the language that was used, like, you know, it's criminal charges. You know, he should That's be banned. Right. Dick, Dick Vitale said he should be banned from the NCAA forever. You know, different people wrote articles like, wait, no, you only give him 12 games? That's not enough. He should never play basketball again. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, you know what I mean? Notice I the speed he, of that, exactly. Right. I understand he should be punished. I, I understand what he did was wrong and against the rules, but just the and way he that he also understood it, what he did was wrong right. He immediately put the chair down. Yes. So, and it was very, and once again, absolutely right. And and these are the types of things when you have these conversations with your friends, and and this is where the black white relationships where they all start to break down, where you'll hear hear people say, "Well, I I don't care about black or white. I just care about justice." And then you see something like this happen, and you see how all of these different ideas color these basic, supposedly basic notions. That's, that's definitely true. So I thought that was a great way that you explored that here in this chapter. Let's go on to the next, open season and the, the mediocre white boy. Um, and this is, a, this is a, a notion where, and I talk about this with my guys a lot as far as, you know, you're looking at somebody else get away with something that you can't get away with. That's basically, no that's basically what it is. Uh, whether it's dealing with the police, whether it's dealing with schools, mm-hmm. whether it's dealing with your work ethic, whether it's dealing with whatever it is, you're looking at other people, um, and by other people, I mean your white counterparts, be able to do things that you uh, can't do because there's two sets of rules. But I want you to explain a little bit more about uh, well, certainly. Point. I think it really is all about what I refer to as the assumption of competence. I started to think more and more about the number of times Um, we hear these words about merit and meritocracy and affirmative action and Mm -hmm. all of these different conversations. And it it, it struck me that when it came to African-Americans, I'd noticed over the course of my career that you started to realize that you can't win, that you started to feel like it was a sort of hopeless situation in some ways because... When you're not part of the system, you're draining it. You're mm-hmm. bringing the system down. Mm-hmm. And when you are part of it, you're, you're an affirmative action hire. Mm-hmm. But, but I noticed that my white counterparts never questioned their own competence. They assumed that they belong. Mm-hmm. They always assumed that they belong. And yet, when you begin to look at the actual raw numbers of who gets hired and who doesn't, and we're talking about this, obviously, in sports, over the NFL coaching and how frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, a full dissidence moment that NFL coaches are having right now where they're recognizing that no matter how much time we put in and how, many, how much experience we have, they don't want us. Right. We're not getting the chance. We're not going to get the opportunity. And yet you see all of these other folks get opportunities that they're not getting. And I wanted to talk about this concept of the assumption of competence and, and what that meant and how, how when you're in the business the competence 
of your white counterparts, they assume their own. They believe they belong. They know that they're good. And even when they don't get jobs, they, they, they may be upset that they don't get jobs, but they don't, they don't assume that the people that got the job didn't deserve it. They just uh-huh. didn't get the job. Uh-huh. Whereas when, when somebody black advances... Uh, obviously, they didn't deserve what they've gotten. And you're seeing this now with so many lawsuits, especially at the college level at Harvard, all these admissions lawsuits. You're seeing this idea once more that when it comes to African-Americans in so many ways, there is this inherent belief that somehow you have not earned what you have. You don't belong, and you're constantly fighting to prove that you do. And I think that one of the other pieces of that essay was to talk about that the women are starting to feel this now as well, that mm-hmm. even though you see a lot of white women advancement, they're going through this on the, on the Me Too side of it as well. The, the number of people in our business who now say that they don't even feel comfortable being in a, in a room solo with women because they feel that they're, you know, they're standing might be in jeopardy. And, mm-hmm. and I remember looking at this and thinking that what's really being protected here now? Are you really telling me that you do not feel comfortable? You can't go have dinner with a female colleague because you feel like she's going to ruin your career? What is this narrative and how is this taking place and, and what's really being protected? Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, you know, and especially, you know, I'll move on to the next one, but I, especially when you're looking at even pres- the, the presidents. I mean, President Obama had to be the cream of the crop. He had to be the top in everything. He had to be impeccable with no no blemish in his his history or anything like that. And all Donald Trump had to be was rich and white. That was it. He didn't have any previous anything. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any credentials. He didn't have any previous positions that that, that would allow him to be able to um, be justifiably a good choice for the president of the United States. Yeah, and that and that's Etan, that that's exactly what this entire book is about is that you started to look at this in all of these different areas. And I began to think more and more about there's a rot taking place in this country. There's a con taking place here. And that you can see it in so many different areas and all of these different areas begin to come together for me in these different these different types of essays whether we're talking about race whether we're talking about whether we're talking about merit whether we're talking about labor we're talking about power all of these different areas began bringing me back to the same point and that was that there is a movement happening right now and and I felt like it was taking place in so many ways in sports where we're being told too that there's that that none of these issues are are uh, occurring when this is actually the spot where you can see everything sort of lay itself out. Definitely agree. Okay, let's go to the next one, the hero game. And, um, you know, this is an interesting one as well because uh, this is something that that as I was going around speaking um, in different universities, um, this hero game of having somebody who you who you wear your, their jersey, their, 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 your son has their picture on the wall. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you, you literally have this fandom, you know, where you love everything about them. But then you hear something that they, that they say that you don't agree with. What happens to that? Yeah, yeah. And that, that chapter for me, that essay was really also about celebrity and about the, the creeping celebrity and about the distance in terms also in wealth equality in a lot of ways as well, which goes into the next essay about the role of celebrity in the culture and how celebrity is, is, is overtaking policy and how we're, you know, there, there are two, there are two sides of the essay in that, of the thought in that essay. One was this idea of falling in love with the gesture where you have these, these, 
people who commit acts or whomever, whether we're talking about Donald Trump or whether we're talking about John McCain or whoever we're talking about, Uh we're talking about all you have to do in this culture is your one good deed and does and, and what does that do for you in terms of how people view you. But the other side of it was the hero game, which I feel is very, very dangerous in so many ways when we're talking about how many more times do we see these stories of Jay-Z and Beyonce and Kevin Durant and all of these rich people paying for college for somebody or LeBron James building a school for someone. And the battle takes place... And where people want to ask you, well, you know, well, what's the matter with LeBron James building a school? And my point in the essay is, is that there's nothing wrong with it as long as it's not replacing policy. And I'm getting more and more concerned. How many times do we see these human, heartwarming human interest stories of the 12-year-old with the lemonade stand trying to raise money for, you know, her mother's cancer treatments? And I'm thinking, this isn't heartwarming and this is not human interest at all. This is a society that is getting away from us, that we're losing a lot of our principles. And yet you see so many times this overwhelming sort of uh, celebrity taking over the, the different parts of the culture where, okay, is, it, is there something wrong with Jay-Z and Beyonce paying for four years of college for somebody? Yeah, as long as you're that person. And this goes back to what we were talking about in Chapter 2 about it's okay to criticize the military, is that there's plenty of money in this country, and yet you think about all of these different ways where people are being left behind hoping that celebrity is going to save us. And what I was trying to get at, especially in terms of black celebrity as well, is that we protect it so much. LeBron James isn't going to save every single person, and yet we seem to be comfortable with this replacing having real policy in the country. And the, the one part that I would say that I would have to respectfully disagree with on, on in this chapter would be that my interpretation of it when I saw Jalen Rose do his school or LeBron James do his school and the amount of success they had with their school, um, not that it should... Uh, replace policy, but it should influence policy. Because if they can do that with their school and and with these young people who have been deemed to be at risk, who've been yes. labeled mm-hmm. to be the unteachable, you know what I mean? That That's need right. to have a certain label and be put on a on a on a, in a certain school or a certain type of curriculum, but they can have the results that they have. I, my my contention would be that that should show that with the right type of education, anybody can be successful. But our Agreed, education but system. Our education mm-hmm. system is at fault right now. So I think that their success should show where we have to make an adjustment in our actual education system. Agreed, and I don't argue that point at all, but my question is, is that happening? Mm. Or, or are we saying, okay, well, we'll just wait for the rich people to come save us, or are we saying that we know nobody's coming to save us, so this is as good as it's going to get? Good point. Definitely a good point. Um, uh, all right, so let's go to the next one, the, the jokes on you. Uh, what was your point with the jokes on you? Well, I think the point in that essay was really all about the different areas where it's getting away from us, where you look at um, privatization versus public wealth, and you're looking at so many different areas where the joke is on all of us. And I think that, uh, like we're talking about with the black coaches in the NFL, where you start to hit this moment where you go, this isn't happening for us, or where you look at, you look at the, the cabinet after the election, and you're looking at they're all... They're all billionaires, and you're looking at them, and you're, you're looking at people not paying their taxes, and we're being told to, to, to follow along with this, to lean into this, 
when actually the joke is on us and you're looking at the the different ways where the dollars are getting away from us you're looking at the ways that the policy is getting away you're looking at the ways that that these cabinet members are being installed into the government not to regulate but to deregulate and to essentially take away so much of the public trust and that you start to look at this and when you add all of this into the the other areas of inequality you start to see that it is getting away from us, that it is a spectacular con in, in um, one of my favorite writers, Naomi Klein's words, is that it, it is something that I wanted to look at and you started to see these different areas where you, you are asking yourself, are you, why are we okay with this? Um, and especially from the standpoint of education, we're talking about education. If you look at the, the number of ways that education is being completely defunded, deregulated, and uh, whether it's that, whether it's the environment. And I think one of the areas that I really thought about, too, was we want to be good in the good society. We want to do the right things. And I started to look at this in terms of my own 401k. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting to add that into the essay that we want to think that we have the right politics. We want to feel like we are the clean fuel. And then I look at my own 401k and I'm funding private prisons and I'm, you know, and my econ sector is funding the Keystone Pipeline and all of these different things that politically I say I disagree with and yet it's fueling my retirement. Mm. So I thought it was key to look at that as well and to, to pay attention and, and to think that on the one hand, you may think that you're the clean fuel, but in a lot of ways, there's no such thing as a non-pollutant. I thought that was a very good point. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at somebody who, you know, that you're talking about different athletes and, you know, somebody who gets a lot of criticism, of course, you know, who always gets brought up in this conversation is Michael Jordan. Um, And they talk about him, um, you know, different things that he's invested in, different things that he that has contributed to things that are pretty much against um, conventionally the 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 upliftment of the of the black community. Now, he does a lot of great things, you know, what I mean, but his stuff is in a microscope. You know, well, and he, it's all of us. I mean, how many of us need to look at our own right. and say, okay, well, look at your own carbon footprint or look at what, mm-hmm. you, look at what are you doing and where do you fit in this? Right. And I think, I think that goes with as far as the investments. And I love the example that you brought with the 401k and also with athletes speaking up. And I want to talk about this. We're, we're, we're running close on time. And I think this is absolutely great. I, I wanted to go back to athletes and what Colin Kaepernick has taught us, going back to the, the first chapter, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. far as how can athletes be an effective tool and you know in order to push things you know further in society and in order to push for policy changes in order to push push for the the difference in laws of how we police now you have one instance where you're bringing a issue to the light of everybody using your platform but then how do you take it to the next step Mm -hmm. yeah i I think that you had to know what you're talking about first Mm -hmm. and foremost and i think that you have to be committed and i think that i i think sometimes less is more and there are so many different ways where, you know, we were talking about uh, so many different examples where there's an impulse to get involved. But do you know what you're talking about? Maybe sometimes there's not there's not room um, to talk about some of the issues that so many people want you to be out in front on. And I think that it's 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 hard. I mean, I really do think that from a player standpoint, there's this there's this feeling and you know this better than I do, obviously, that because you guys make so much more money than we do, because you have so much more platform than we have, we think that you actually are all-powerful when, if we compare what you have against the billionaires, 
you're in the same situation that we are against our bosses in right. a lot of ways, proportionately. Right, and a lot of people don't think about that part. And also, I think a lot of people think that athletes are in this kind of protective bubble, where a lot of the things that happen or are affected in, in society aren't necessarily, you know, affected by athletes. And that's why in, in my book, when I interviewed Dwayne Wade, and he talked to me about how he was personally affected after Trayvon Martin was killed. You know, mm-hmm. Russell, Russell Westbrook telling me how, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he's here and he's playing when he was playing with Oklahoma City, and, you know, the, the, the fans are cheering his name and, you know, chanting and everything like that. But then after he leaves the arena and if he's stopped by the police and the, fan, and the policeman doesn't recognize him, is he going to be treated like Terrence Crutcher? You well, know? exactly. And that's the reason why I think you see Russell Westbrook as a player. He's this season and the last couple of seasons much, much more um, aggravated by fan behavior, much more vocal about it. Yeah, and, and that's another part, though, is that, that behavior and that, that, that feeling that you have the right to be able to spew any type of vile, you know, evil towards a player because you bought your ticket. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you have mm-hmm. that right. And it's just interesting. And going back to the conversation about Kobe, and as he's passed away and you see, you know, hours after he passed away, um, hours after the news was brought out, you, you see our social media people talking about different things that they don't like about him, you know, mm-hmm. that they don't like. And that, that was, a, it, it bothered me, you know, but, I, but it's just that level of, you know, fan and athlete relationship where, you know, you, you don't view us as human. You know, you don't view that. Okay. You're there for your entertainment. It's like, you're, I'm right. not here only for your entertainment. And I think that was one of the things, um, these frustrations that you're starting to add them all together was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book in the first place. And I think in that last section, Renters, was that whole thing. Where do we fit? You start mm-hmm. asking that question. Where do we fit? How many different ways? Um, why are we having this conversation in that you are, you know, people wear your jersey, and yet they feel like they can abuse you. Right. Or you feel like, okay, we go back and forth through all of this. Uh, you know, how many more times can you build the school? How many championships can you win? How many mm-hmm. times can you fight for your country? And yet at the same time, there is this feeling of anti-blackness where you feel like people want to tell you, go back to Africa or go mm-hmm. back where you came from or mm-hmm. all of it. And so I think the sum total of it made, made me really think that there was... There had to be some recalibration on my part about how to navigate this and how to negotiate this. So, and so, so just maybe how do you negotiate this? Because this isn't a partisan issue. This, this happens on both sides of the, of the, of the aisle. You know, and and I, I say that all the time, you know, from on the left and the right. When an athlete speaks out about something that you agree with, then it's all this wonderful athlete and this platform that he's using and this brilliance and like lifting them up. But then when an athlete speaks out on something that you don't agree with, and again, this is both on the left and the right. Then it's like you know an, an attack. Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking yeah. about. He needs to stay in his lane. You know, you know, shut up and Agreed. dribble in different ways. And I think that's a problem that we have bigger in society is being able to actually have a dialogue, a debate, a discussion with somebody that you disagree Agreed. with, and, and it still be okay. Yeah, and I think it's even more pronounced with African Americans because this is uh, the first sentence of the book is to be black is to be a dissident, which mm-hmm. is to say that once again, whenever you get involved in a subject, you are expected to behave in a certain way. And if you notice what happens mm-hmm. with so many African Americans, if you advocate for a position, if you ask for something, immediately the walls go up, immediately there's a retrenchment, immediately there's this feeling that you're being ungrateful and mm-hmm. you should be happy for what you have. And so to me, the issue. My solution had been to not feel like you have to sacrifice what's inside of you, that it's all right 
to to disagree. It's all right to be able to say, listen, I I do have a grievance here, and it's this idea, once again, when you're talking about who belongs here, who gets to own. That's why that last essay is called Renters, is that you can't evict renter, you know, uh, you can't evict the owner. You know, the, the, the idea of being able to tell people to go back where they came from in a lot of ways is, is their way of saying that this is never yours and this is never going to be yours. And I think that the key for, for us in our thinking is to, is to recognize that that cannot be taken away from you whether you want to uh, participate or not. I think that's great. And, you know, we just have a couple of minutes left. And my, my, my platform and my push as I'm going around speaking different places, encouraging athletes to continue to use their voices, to n- understand the, the power of their voice and the power of their platform. And, and you have a, a, a great job of showing uh, mainstream America, you know, the, the, the way that, that the chips are kind of stacked up against, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're an athlete or whether you're a regular person to have a nine to five, the chips are stacked. What would be your advice in these final minutes? Um, first to athletes um, who, who want to use their voice, who have all these passions, want to make an actual change, but are a little <coughs> bit nervous because they know the difference in the two worlds that do exist, even with athletes um, of, of, of their stature. Well, certainly I think you got to be a citizen, and I think that you have to recognize there, there is an anti-blackness in sports, and I think that we treat it as though there's not. We treat it as though, well, I mean, all the players are black, so therefore, and the players are millionaires, and so therefore, this is the place for them when we, you recognize, when you walk in that locker room, that it's not the case. So I do think you have to be extremely uh, judicious about it, and you got to be smart about it. And, and when I say smart, I mean recognizing that there is hostility against you there. But I also feel like you're a citizen. And I think that in today, you know, to, today's world, more than, any, more than any time previously, there's opportunity. And uh, obviously, you, you know when you're in that room, there are times when you have leverage and there are times when you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that the most important thing that African Americans can do in looking at this feeling like the deck is stacked against you, and even if you're not black, um, is, is to feel um, empowered by what you see in the mirror because there are far, far, far too many examples where you're placed against that white backdrop or you're placed against the hostile backdrop where you feel like the outsider. And I think sometimes when you dig a little bit deeper, you start to realize that there are many, many people who are in the same boat and you don't feel like you should check out necessarily, but you don't always have to lean into the mainstream. If you're looking out there and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't love the fact that I see F-14 flyovers going on at a sporting event. Obviously, maybe that's not the time, but you're allowed to feel something different. It's all right to feel a little different from what the mainstream wants you to think. The book is called Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field by Howard Bryan. Thanks for writing this and thanks for everything that you're doing and pushing for. Much respect to you. Hey, my pleasure. Good to see you. Bless. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, we would appreciate it if you would rate and review us. You can also contact us at podcast at c-span.org.